acting either way. So earlier this week, I, I had to have oral surgery on, on this tooth back here. And, and uh, yesterday when we were practicing for the play, still su- suffering the, 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 the stitches and all that other stuff, I kept speaking oddly. And the teenagers kept making fun of me. So I'm just telling you in advance if I slur or, or lisp, which is what they really enjoyed. Um, contain your laughter a little bit, all right? Really, just this section over here. Um, so anyways, I just want to say, you know, the, the floor is coming along nicely. I mean, you guys like that? It'll be nice when the fence is there. And it'll be great to uh, play some basketball and some volleyball. We're excited about that. And to have some, uh, some events with the kids, which is going to be great. All, everybody's been putting a lot of work. Reagan and I laid uh, quite a lot of the floor this week, which is fun. That's why I have a band-aid on my finger. I sliced it open with a razor blade. Um, so if you see blood out there, it's mine. I apologize. Actually, she cleaned it. You cleaned it up. You got it cleaned up. <laughs> so um, anyways, this morning, I this Mission Sunday, um, you know, well, actually, first, there's something that, that God's really been speaking to me over the, I, I say probably three weeks, and I haven't said it, and I just feel led to share. And I know I'm preaching a little bit to the choir when I when I talk about this. Um, and maybe it's for some of the teenagers who are going to grow up, and maybe it's for somebody that's here. But I just want to say, you know, one of the one of the things that, that I learned a long time ago about youth ministry is one of the most powerful things that you can do as a parent is to be faithful to church. And now, of course, I'm a pastor, and I should say that. <laughs> but that's not why I'm saying that. I'm saying that because at a young age, kids are learning, okay? And at a young age, kids can't distinguish the difference between God and church. They can't distinguish the difference between a building. They're, 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 not, they're not thinking in inanimately, like in the spiritual. They're thinking in the physical. When they grow up and they're going to church or they hear about church, they hear you say, this is God's house. We're here to worship God. I mean, they come in and sit through church, and even if they're playing down on the, on the floor, they're listening to the things that are being said. And what's being said is, this is where we come to worship God, okay? Now, as we grow up, we realize God is everywhere. We, we should be worshiping God at home. We should be studying his word at home. We should be doing things outside of church. But let's be honest, for the most part, most Christians, this is the hour and a half, the two hours that are designated to God. And so, I, you know, something over maybe even a month, that God's been speaking is like, we have to remind ourselves that whatever, whatever comes before church, all right, this or any other church, whatever comes before church over a period of time will communicate to our children comes before God. Because in their minds, that's how they view things, right? That's how they view things. So if this comes before church, in their mind, they're growing up thinking this comes. And I'm telling you, 25 years, no, maybe 20 years of youth ministry, I can confidently tell you, I've watched kids grow up. The church we were at before, we were there nine years. So I watched kids who were eight, right, go to 17. I watched kids who were 10, but 19. I've watched kids grow up, and I have watched it unfold in, in some way. That doesn't, it's just like, wow, this, this you know, this kid is. And I, and I only want to encourage you, that doesn't mean your kids aren't going to rebel to some degree. What I believe it means is that your kids will be conscious of the fact that they are rebelling. Does that make sense? That they're aware, that like you're communicating, hey, I'm, I'm not doing what my parents did. That's better than them saying, I'm going to 
do what my parents did if their parents were, were not putting God first. So I don't know who it was for, why God's been speaking to me. I, maybe I should have said it three weeks ago and that person's not here. I apologize for those of you that just had to sit through that for no reason. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So today is missions, uh, Mission Sunday. And um, uh, one of the things that I have uh, been wrestling with over missions and, and what, we've, what we're doing and, and, and why I'm so excited about this new uh, vision to reach the world as far as missions is concerned. One of the things that's really been gnawing at my heart is what motivates me. And I don't know if it's first world. I don't know if it's America. I don't know if it's capitalism. But I know this. I know that I'm motivated by success. And I don't just mean I'm motivated by my success. I'm motivated by success. When you scroll through social media, when you go online to look up, when you go to the bookstore, okay, you don't buy books that are written about failure, right? You're not like, oh, this guy, look at this guy's, this guy, he was terrible. You're like, oh, I'm going to read that book. <laughs> you know, he failed at everything. Um, you, like, our culture, we're kind of like motivated by success. You hear a story, right? Isn't that the whole concept of testimonies, right? We, we hear people share testimonies and we're thinking, oh my gosh, I just read a really great story about a mayor who was, who got saved in prison. 22 years of age, he was in federal prison, and now he's the mayor. And I can't remember what city it is, but what a powerful testimony, right? Now motivates you. But every time I kept thinking about specific things, right? I mean, some are here, right? I, 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 Josh motivates me when I look at him as, as, the, as the refuge is concerned. I get excited. Look at what Josh is, is striving for. Austin motivates me when I think about this ministry, and I think, man, look at Austin. He's serving God and Master's Commission in Texas, right? And I get, I get excited. I get motivated. I'm like, man, I'm motivated by that. But Jesus wasn't motivated by success. Jesus wasn't motivated. Jesus said, let heaven rejoice. But I'm going after the one. Right? Jesus wasn't motivated. He didn't go, we've got 99. I mean, in my mentality, I think to myself, if I got 99 sheep and one of them's lost, I mean, Obviously, if I had 99 sheep and one of them was lost, I would be reminded of the Bible verse because I know it. But you get what I'm saying. If I had 99 sheep and one of them was lost, I'd be like, I still got 99. You know, that's awesome. I got 99 sheep, you know. If you don't like us, go ahead. Right? See how good you do out there. <laughs> You'll be back. <laughs> like, like I, that's my, men, but I got 99. We're still doing all right. Jesus is like, nope. He leaves the 99 for the one. He leaves the 99 for the one. This is such a deep reflection of God's love for the lost. Man, it communicates on such a level to me. And maybe it's because we're first world. Maybe it's because of, of the, the, the freedom of, of pursuing our own dreams that it speaks to me that he didn't just go, we've got 99. In fact, the verse quite clearly says when he goes out and he searches and he finds and he rescues that one, he brings it back and he celebrates he says in that verse, heaven celebrates more for the one that was lost in return than for the 99 it already had. Now, I don't know about you, but we're the 99. You know we're the 99, right? <laughs> like, maybe some of you are not here right now. But, and I've been thinking about that, and I, I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, this morning. For verse 1, I'm going to go one, um, 1 through 5 at first. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, 
that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock, rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. For they laid low in the wilderness. Here we go, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, right? So what he's saying? Three times he says, they all. They all. Here he's talking about the Israelites. He's talking about the Hebrew children who were rescued out of slavery. So here he's talking about the Israelites and how the Israelites who were slaves to Pharaoh and to Egypt, who were whipped and beaten, who were forced to build those pyramids. I know that's a shock to some of you, but people built those. All right? God's people built those. Right? They were whipped and beaten to build those things. They were in slavery. God delivered them. In fact, the Bible says God has heard their cry. So the, 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 the uh, Hebrew children sang out, cried out, prayed, God, save you, save us. God, rescue us. Right? And then here they are, they're rescued. And what is he doing? In Corinthians, Paul's rehashing. He's going through what took place. They all were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate of the same spiritual food. But he said they all did. Every single one of them experienced salvation. Every single one of them watched God demonstrate his power and his faithfulness to keep his promises. Every single one of them saw God do things that defied any sense of logic or reason. At his own word, this is what I said I would do. And he did it. The sea parted. They all walked through it. Right? And when they didn't know where they were going, a cloud appeared by day and fire by night to lead them. And when they weren't happy with the food, birds delivered it. Right? We're looking at every single one. There's three times he's emphasizing this. Three times. There are no exceptions. They all. There are no outliers. They all. They all saw. They all experienced. They were all saved. That means none of them have an excuse. Nevertheless, it says in verse 5, nevertheless, they laid low. Nevertheless, they laid low. And worse, they laid low in the wilderness. Nevertheless, they laid low. What do I mean by that? I'm going to pick just one example of them laying low. Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. We're going to go verses 17 through 20 first. Numbers chapter 13. 17th, here they are at the edge of the, God's promise. Verse 17, when Moses sent them out to spy the land, he said to them, go up there into Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like, whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land, because now is the time of the first ripe grapes. Right? Verse 25. So I'm going to jump up to 25 through 33. When they returned from spying out the land at the end of the 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And this they told them. We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly 
does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are all living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are all living by the sea and by the, sea, um, by the side of Jordan. Verse 30, then Caleb, I, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption here, right? So here's what they're saying. Moses sent out 12 spies, one from each tribe. He sends out 12 spies. I want you to go, and he gives them direct, direct orders. This is what I want you. Now, they're standing here. Now, I want you to remember why this verse points it out in Corinthians. They're standing on the edge of what God has promised. In 1 Corinthians 10, we hear them saying, they all saw what God did at the Red Sea. They all saw what God did with the cloud by day. They all saw what God did by fire by night. They all saw what God did when Moses struck the rock and gave them water. They all saw what God did with the, with the, the, the uh, birds delivering food when they were tired of eating the food that God had provided. They all saw it. No exceptions. In fact, the Bible tells us they were told to keep an omar, just, an, of, of, of just a tiny bit of that manna in a jar to remind them that God gave them supernatural provision, right, to remind them. So not only did they see it for their children, who maybe were too young to remember it, they all in their tents would have a jar that their children would learn that is an example of the man that God provided. God provided. God did that. So now they come to the edge of this promise. Now remember, they cried under the whip. They cried out for freedom in slavery. God saved me from Egypt. Save me from Pharaoh. Save me from this life. And what does God do? But through unbelievable demonstrations of his power, whether it was the, the plague of frogs or the blood in the river, God provided a miracle over and over and over again to say, the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrew children is the only God that lives, and he has authority over all the earth. They saw it, so Pharaoh let them go. Red Sea, fire, clouds. Here we have them, right? standing on the edge of the promised land that he rescued them for. Standing them on the promised land that he rescued them for. He says, send out 12 spies. And the 12 spies, they go out. And when they come back, they give this, they give this report, right? And I'm thinking to myself when I read it, when they said, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk. I'm sure the crowd went crazy. But then they go on to say, but this and 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 this. And the crowd now is reacting. So Caleb quiets the people before Moses and he says, we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Right? But the men who had gone up with him, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying the land though which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Right? Here. Read, I'll read it again. So it gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report. You could say this is the first proof of fake news. No, I'm just kidding. I couldn't pass it up. <laughs> I couldn't pass it up. They lied. They lied. They were so fearful. They lied. Caleb said, no, 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 no. We can take it. We can take it. 
right? Caleb said, we can take it. But they said, nope, it devours its inhabitants. Stop. They, they weren't talking about the people. They lied about the promise. They lied about the promise. Right? They were saying, they, were, they wanted to lay low in the wilderness. They wanted to lay, hey, let's stay here. Let's not go in there. Even though everything God promised us is there, we saw it with our own eyes. They're willing to lie about the promise. They're willing to lie about the promise. What will life be like in the promised land? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. What will it be like? It'll be awesome. It'll be wonderful. Be everything God promised. They lied about it because they wanted to lay low. Said, no, oh no, no, no. We don't need to go in there. But Caleb and the sons, no, we can surely take it. They said they lied about it. They also, we saw, so he's telling the sons of Anak are part of it. And this is what they said after they lied about the land. The land will devour its own people. They said, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in theirs. We became like grasshoppers in our own sight. What's going on here? Right? Did, did Caleb go to a different land? What's going on? Did they go to two different places? Right? Isn't it interesting? Twelve spies. They all had the same assignment. They all went at the same time. They all went to the same place. Yet two of them came back and said, hey, we can take this because God is bigger than them. God's word is bigger than them. God's promise is bigger than them. Ten of them came back and said, heck no, let's lay low in the wilderness. Ten of them came back and literally said, we would rather live as nomads than take hold of the promise God delivered us for. We would rather live as nomads than take hold of the promise God delivered us for. Let's be real. Right? Unless there was a welcoming party waiting for them with signs, like at the airport. <laughs> hey, tribe of Jude, welcome. Unless there was a sign, a party waiting for them saying, come, take our land. Ten of them were never going to come back with a good report. They were never going to come back with a good report. Unless they went there and saw no obstacle. Unless they went there and saw no problem, no issue. Nothing that required any effort or faith. They were going to come back with they had become comfortable living in the wilderness. They had become comfortable talking about what the promised land was going to be like. That was enough for them. Let us just converse about what things could be. As long as it doesn't affect how things are, I'm fine with that. And let's be clear, two of them were going to come back no matter what and say it's ours. They went knowing there was a distinctive difference in those 12. Right? Two of them were going. It didn't matter that they, it did not matter to Caleb. Caleb knew something about God that he was faithful. Caleb knew something about God that his word prevailed. Caleb knew that. There's no way he walked into that promised land with any other idea than God promised us this. Because he would not encounter the Amalekites. He would not look at Goliath's ancestors and think to himself, we could take them unless he believed that God could take them. Right? Unless he believed that God could take them. Because the battle's real. Right? The truth is this. The battle is real, but it's real between here and here. God does a work within our heart. What we have affection for, what we cling to in our hearts, speaks to our head. 
That's why the Bible tells us there has to be a renewing of, of our mind. That's what transforms our minds. Where your hearts are, there your treasure, right? Where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. Right? What the battle isn't here. The battle's here. The battle that that those 12 spies fought long before they walked into that land. They had already determined in battle what was going to occur when they walked into that promise. When they went to spy out what God was going to give to them, they had already made the determination in that fight that took place like this. Right? Their heart was clinging to something. Their life. Albeit in the wilderness, it was their life. Albeit as nomads, it was still their Life And their affection for that life caused them to think ungodly. Right? And I don't mean evil. I mean ungodly. It says in the verse, we saw ourselves as grasshoppers. Therefore, they saw us as grasshoppers. They're thinking. They had already decided. We can't win that. We can't fight that. Even though they all had seen the Red Sea part. Even though they had all seen, they had all eaten manna. They had all eaten manna. They had all seen the rest. They had all seen the fire. They had all seen the cloud. They had all seen. How many of us can say that? I, I understand this. I've seen God. I've written testimonies. I can talk about what God has done miraculously in my life in the past. And yet I could stand before a promise and question whether or not God is capable to fulfill it. Question or not, question or not whether or not God is capable of delivering what he's promised, even though I've seen him do it in the past, right? Why? Why? Because typically what God needs me to do to grab hold of that is something that is frightening, something that I, well, wait a minute, what, what has happened? I've become comfortable with my life. I've become comfortable even in the wilderness. I would rather live as a nomad then take a risk, one that might cost me something, one that might cause something to go wrong in my life, or at least wrong in my own eyes. That's why it requires faith. That's why the battle takes place between here and here. Victory is won long before you step into the battle. Victory is won, not just because God has already won, but because it's already won here and here. There's a transforming that takes place in the renewing of our mind to recognize when the word says all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose, that that means all things. Therefore, when something goes sideways, there aren't moments of, of worry or trepidation. We don't cause pause and go, oh man, that's it, I'm quitting. Why? Because this isn't working out the way I saw it working out. Right? They, they could not march into the promised land. They couldn't march into the promised land with anything less than the confidence and faith that God was going to deliver it. The first time one of those behemoth of men took out their buddy, they're all running. Right? Because 10 to 2, those I'm going to guess those are the odds. 20% of them believed God was able. Right? Well, no, that's not 20%, but whatever. That's why I don't do the money. God had, more prom had, had made more promise and kept them. They all had seen it. They all had lived it. Yet only two of the ten 
Two of the 12 had more faith in God's ability and his faithfulness than they had faith in what they saw in the world or, war, or a world God had already proven answers to him. Think about that. God had already proven the world answers to him. He'd already proven it. Right? You think, when Jesus walked the earth, what was one of the most demonstratively overwhelming moments for the disciples? When they reacted. Think, when you read the Bible, did they freak out when he said, Lazarus, come forth? Huh? And I mean, people were like, I mean, in fact, they went and got him, right? I mean, they, the centurion and his son, the, the, the legion of, of demons, right? When he casts them into the pigs and they jump off the cliff, thousands. No, nowhere in the Bible do you see them go, whoa, except one moment in Mark. When it says, even the wind and waves obey him. God had already proven to the Israelites, this world is subject to my word. This world is subject to my word. Has something has to change here. Something. If our heart clings to this world, our thinking will always be tarnished by it. If our heart clings to this world, our thinking will always be tarnished by it. If our heart clings to God's word, to God's word and to God's kingdom, our thinking will be transformed by it. All of a sudden now, we're believing God can do things that don't make sense in this world, yet God promised he would do those things. Corinthians, back to Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave. Now remember, remember, we're talking. He said, they laid low. Nevertheless, they laid low. They all saw it. They all walked through it. Yet, nevertheless, they laid low. Verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were idolaters. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. What is that verse saying? Their whole world revolved around this world. They sat down to eat and drink and they stood up to play. Everything they did was temporal, right? Not eternal. They sat down to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, here we go. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man. What is common to man? There is nothing more common to man than wanting to be comfortable and stay comfortable. There is nothing more common to man. Look, it is not difficult to have faith when it's all you've got. It is not difficult to have faith when that's the only option left on the table. When the doctor come in and comes in and says, sorry, we can do nothing. It is not difficult to fall to your knees and cry out to God. It is not difficult to believe, God, I need you to do something, when God is the only one who can do something. When it's your marriage, when it's your family, when it's your children, doesn't make a difference. 
when it's all you've got, it's not hard. That's, to me, that's not common to man. What's common to man is to lay low in the wilderness. To decide that life is too comfortable to risk. Right? That is what's common to man. What's common to man is that we cling to life. That we embed it in our heart rather than God's word. Can I have faith in God when it puts my life at risk? Hold on. Not my physical life, my life. Right? It's easy to throw myself at the mercy of the cross when I realize that only the cross is going to fix what's happening. But what about when God calls me to do something I don't have to do? What about when God calls me to spy out the wilderness? They had an encampment. They had a system. You don't live in the wilderness for 40 years and not come up with a system. They had a system. They were able to manage. Clearly, they were able to manage. Right? They had children. They raised those children. They had weddings. They had more children. 40 years. They had a system. They were comfortable in that system. Even though they had seen God, and even though they had cried out for God, we don't want to be slaves anymore. So I believe sometimes what we cry out to God, we only want in theory. God, use me in theory. God, do something in my life in theory. God, I don't want to be a slave to sin anymore. I don't want to be stuck with this addiction. I don't want to be stuck with the shame of this sin in theory. In actuality, I've become quite comfortable with this scar on me, right? And you, they were comfortable. They cried out. They didn't want to be slaves. But I'm not sure if they wanted to be free. And then they were free, right? And they didn't want the promise because they had become comfortable in the wilderness, right? Which is not common. We look at it and we recognize this is what's common. Can I put my life at risk? Can I put faith in God and not man? Can I serve God and not mammon? Can I put my faith in God to do what he says he can do when the quality and standard of my life is in play? When my retirement, when my standard of living, when my comfortable existence, when the fact that people around me who may admire or honor or respect me might no longer honor or respect me when I take a stand for what I know to be right. When I stand there and God says, here is the promise that I declared over you, step in and grab hold of it. I, Whoa, wait a minute. There are giants there. There are obstacles there. There are things that I'm going to have to overcome in order to grab hold of the promise that God has given me. I'd rather lay low in the wilderness. I'd rather lay low. Regardless of how much God has already done for us, nevertheless, we have laid low in the wilderness. Even if we're laying low in our misery, we have become comfortably miserable. I tell you, I know lots of people, myself probably included, who have found identity in what ails me. I, have found, I can't, severing myself from whether it's a sin, an ailment, or a circumstance, even when it's an obstacle, I am so identified with that obstacle to, to have God actually deliver me from it would be like severing part of who I am. And so sometimes we fight to hold on to it. We're afraid to let God redefine who we are. Not all of us can be Caleb. 
Last week we talked about these three phases of our walk. Three steps we must take. Last week we talked about the first step, which is to recognize who God is, what God can do, what God says he will do, right? To rely. Recognizing means to rely. To rely is faith. When you look up the definition, to rely. When you look up the definition of faith, to believe or to rely. Right? My favorite is the one that says to yield. So that when two ideas, two moments, two circumstances, two options come to a, 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 a connection in the road, what do you yield to? Your idea of how things should come, turn out or God's? Your version of what should happen or God's? Your words or his? Faith yields to God. It yields to God. It comes to a point and says, I know this is what God wants me to do, but it is surely not what I want to do. Right? So what yields? A, sunny, a funny story is when the Diamondbacks won the World Series, it was game seven. It was the seventh inning. And I had a kid, we had a bunch of kids at our house. And I think in the seventh inning, the Diamondbacks were behind. Or, or I can't remember exactly to lose. But basically, there was a situation in which there was a chance they were going to lose. It's the seventh inning. And Travis gets a phone call and he says, my mom told me to come home right now. I was his ride. Now, if you're a baseball fan, you know one thing that is so absolutely true. It's as true as the oxygen you're breathing. You don't go anywhere when your team's batting. You don't. There they were. Travis's mom's, I got to go home. Travis is like, don't worry, Pastor Dan, I'll walk. And in that moment, I thought to myself, man, let him walk. <laughs> okay? I went. Yield. Okay? I know it's baseball, that's why I'm using it. It's my, I got to take you home, Travis. Are you sure, Pastor Dan? I'm going to take you home. Get in. He take It wasn't a far drive, but I'm telling you, it was the longest drive of my life. I was like, please, you know, dropped him off. I come back. I didn't turn the radio on. I came in, you know, and, of course, they won the World Series because I took Travis to his mom's house. That's why they won the World Series. I used it as an example because it's simple, right? There are moments every single day in our life. They don't have to be serious moments. Moments in our lives when we know God is telling us to do the right thing and our flesh is telling us, that's absurd, do what you want. Faith relies upon God. When the two collide, there's a yielding that takes place. Either God's word in your life it yields or you yield to it. Right? Recognizing that God is able is the first step. Relying on God is the second. Caleb relied not on what he saw in the promised land. He relied on God. It mattered not what was going to be in that promised land. Spying it out was only his due diligence. He knew God had promised that promised land. He didn't care that the men in it were nine feet tall. He didn't care that they were strong. He didn't care that they were warriors. He didn't care that they were fortified. He said, with great confidence, we can surely take it. That's what he said. Why? Because he knew to rely on God's word. Because that's what faith is. Faith is the ability to grab a hold of the things that are just beyond our reach. If faith is not grabbing a hold of things, you should not be able to get. It is not faith. If you can't save your marriage and it's saved, that's faith. If you can't 
do something for your children. Yet God uses somebody else because of your prayers, because of your faith, to do a work in them. That is faith. When you give and you can't afford it, it is faith to grab a hold of the things just beyond your reach. To believe that even though I'm lonely because I'm single, even though because it's hard because I'm single, I'm not going to give or settle for the wrong person. I'm only waiting for the right person because God promised me there's a right person. And I will wait no matter how hard it is. And that, is it out of my ability to wait? Yes, it's out of my ability to wait. But faith makes it possible for me to grab a hold of that which is beyond my reach. And finally, if the worship team will come up, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2 through 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2 through 7. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. I love Paul. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, I don't do anything that's within my power to do. I don't walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Stop. This verse says everything we need to know. It says this. We don't fight according to the flesh. Not by might, not by power, but by God's spirit. We don't fight according to the flesh. Hmm? But we war according, right? We don't, we don't, what we, the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh. They're divinely powerful for the destructions of fortresses. They're divinely powerful for the destruction. So they're going to do something powerful in the world. They're going to alter it. They're going to change it. The kingdom of light is going to pierce the kingdom of darkness. The gates of hell will not prevail against the children of God, against God's church and against his kingdom. This says the weapons that we have, they're not of the flesh. Though we walk in the flesh, though we live in the flesh, we don't war in the flesh. They're divine. We pray, we fast, we rely upon God's promises. We are obedient to those things. But listen, he says these weapons are there to destroy fortresses. Huh? We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God because we're taking everything. He said, the battle is here. The battle is here. You can sit and say, that's coming down, that's coming down, that's coming. God needs to do so. You can drive by every pot farm and every strip club and say, that's coming down. But if you don't believe it in here, if you haven't said, nope, the weapons of our warfare, they're not the flesh, they're destruction. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Where is the battle? The battle is here. When we start raising up our ideas rather than God's word. When we start raising up what we think God wants rather than what God tells us he wants. He says that the weapons are there to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. You are looking at the things as they are outwardly. Say, we are ready 
to be to the obedience of God. We are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. What obedience? That transformation that takes place in my mind. The transformation that Caleb demonstrated by walking into the promised land with the knowledge that God promised me this land. When you're looking at it, you say, you know what? I'm going into a conversation. God promised me my children will be saved. I'm walking into an argument. I'm walking into a setting. God promised me he's going to save my marriage. I'm walking into this thing. God promised. Now, when I get into this thing, I need to not be distracted by the things that don't appear to line up with the promise. You said my kids will be saved, but that's not what's unfolding right now. That's not what I'm hearing. Right? What I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm sensing defies what you promised me. What's more powerful? That God said he has a plan for your life, even though you don't see it anywhere in your life. God promises that he's a plan for you, for a hope and for a future. But you look around your life and you go, I don't see any effect of that plan. But God promised it. Do I quit? Do I lay low in my wilderness because God's asking me to do or face things that I'm afraid to face. But he promised me. He promised me. When we recognize, and I believe this with my whole heart, because I think one of the hardest things is to do is to overcome the temptation that is common to man. When we talk about the fact that Jesus goes after the one, even though he's got 99, that's a temptation that's common to man for it takes an inconvenient dedication to pursue the one. It takes quite a deal of thought to overcome the idea that who's going to take care of the 99 while I'm out chasing the one? Who's going to take care of this when I'm giving my money to missions? Who's going to take care of this when I'm giving my time to church? Who's going to take care of this? There's a, what is common to man? My comfortable existence in the wilderness is at play. It's on the table, and there's a risk that it's going to be affected if I try to take hold of the promise. Do I want to just stay and lay low, sing about, pray about, pontificate about what will be like the day that God gives me his promise? I can take the days in which I complain about what he is not yet to do and the days in which I dream about what he will do, but I'm staying in the wilderness. I'm laying low. I'm going to make sure that while I am comfortable here in the wilderness, while it may not be where I was, because he delivered me, it surely isn't where he wants me to be. But right now, it's where I am. You say, man, I'm telling you, there is not a single person in this room who God does not have a promise for. Not a single one. There's not a single person in this room who God has not said, I have purposed, purposed for you a life. Abundant. Beyond what you can even ask or think, I've purposed for you a, a plan of hope and a future. I have a promise for you. But you will face some giants. Your eyes will be tempted to doubt. Your ears will be tempted to fear. Your heart, at times, may shudder in the presence of darkness. But I'm promising you, not because I can, because God's word can. God is faithful to the end. He is faithful, he is faithful, he is faithful. And when we have, cannot rely 
of us go back to step one and recognize, God, who are you? God, are you? Can Yes, God, you can. You're big. You're mighty. You're majestic. You're omnipotent. You are the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. You're the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Through you, all things have come to existence. There's nothing that happens outside your purview, Father God, and you love me your plans are for me and your heart is towards me God you are you are my saving grace you are the lover of my soul God that's who you are can you do it yes you can do it now can I let you do it can I rely can I have faith to walk not by sight but by every utterance that comes out of the mouth of God that that what I think God is calling me to. I want to be Caleb. I don't even know the other names. But I do know the one who walked into it with faith and came out of it with victory. And led an entire nation. And I just say, that is what I believe God is calling us to as a church in 2019. Which he's saying, there are things that we can do that are beyond right now, even now. I believe there are things that God is calling some of you to do that he can't even tell you today. He's calling you to do them because you would laugh. He said, he's lost his mind. No, no, he knows exactly what you're here for. And I do mean that. He knows exactly what you're here for. He wants to speak to you. Wants to do a work in you. God's not here because of somebody else. He's here because of you. He's here because of you. He wants you to know. He wants you to know you're a Caleb. He wants you to know that while you may be comfortable in the wilderness, it doesn't just pale in comparison to the promise. It is not even worth comparing to the promise. It's not even worth comparing to what God has spoken and planned for your life. To understand beautiful and to rely on your word. Because the promise you have for me is so beautiful, so marvelous, that it will require faith for me to acquire. It will require faith for me to acquire it. Because the life that God has planned for you, you cannot build with your hands. Only he can build it. The family, the marriage, the plan that God has for you, you cannot build with your hands. You need faith to acquire it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I, I thank you, God, that even though we suffer from the temptation that is common to man, God, that there is a solution, there is a cure, there is an answer for that temptation. And God, we would learn to trust you. And we would learn to hide your word in our heart, Father God so that it might transform the way we think.
we can grab a hold of every thought that exalts itself against you and cast it aside. Father God, we are not worthless. We are not wasted. We are not forgotten. We are not mistakes. There is not a past in this room so bad, so tragic, and so shameful that it has the authority or the power to subvert God's plan for any life. Not a single one. But God, what you did on that cross is so absolute. What you did on that cross is so final, Lord Jesus. There is not a sin or a shame or a past that can raise itself from the dead and overcome what you did on that cross. Father God, what we have asked forgiveness for has been forgotten. And Lord Jesus, you and you alone are the name, is the name at which every knee will bow. Every disease will be healed. Your name is what breaks the shackles of sin and addiction, the fear of death, the fear of loss. God, I pray that in the name of Jesus, God, that you would do that work in us, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit. That this morning you would allow our thoughts to be lifted, that our eyes would gaze upon you, not of this world, there is an eternity that awaits us. That is why, God, you're motivated by the one. That is why the thought of one being lost caused you to send your son to die. The thought of one. And a God that loves like that surely will not allow us to linger at loss. Would not allow us to be disappointed by unfaithfulness. This morning, God, I pray. I pray that you would do what only you can do in us. Those that have lingered too long in the wilderness. Those who have laid low. Those, Father God, who have laid low so long they thought that that was confirmation, God, that their life was insignificant. They've laid low so long, God, and you've done in their eyes nothing to arouse them. Nothing to draw them out. Nothing to push them into the promise. To them, it was confirmation that their life was insignificant. That they didn't matter. But God, they do. You love them and you have a plan for them. And I pray, God, you would do us a a, a work within us. And stir our spirit in the name of Jesus. That courage and faith would rise. That we would rely upon the only one who is reliable. That we would rely upon the only word that is reliable. The only fact that is reliable. That we would wake up this week every day, God, believing that we are the husbands and the wives and the fathers and the parents that you've called us to be. That we are the children, Father God, that bring honor, not only to our families, but to you, God. That we would wake up confessing that the promise that you've spoken over us That we can be delivered. That we can find freedom. If we will face those giants. We thank you for it in the mighty name of Jesus. In the mighty name of Jesus. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. Ethan, will you guys lead us in a song? We're going to take the the faith promise, the missions offering this morning. I just want to say, I prayed... I didn't feel like this was a missions message. I was like, man, this is Mission Sunday. What are we doing? 
But can I say something? I, like what really spoke to me was this. Missions is all about the one. And, the, and the, 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 the temptation that is common to man, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, I'm not, I want, I'm not saying this is prophetic, my opinion is what has, has subdued the most powerful church in the world into taking care of those things that are here. And not realizing, not realizing, I, I, I won't use his name, but I, I sat in a meeting for the Refuge Foundation this past week it was funny because one of the new board members was making a comment and he said when I realized how little a sacrifice it would take for me to provide clean water to an entire village I realized I could not do nothing that's what he said I realized I could not do nothing and you know what has transpired because of that revelation is he has communicated to other friends the same revelation that he had it takes almost, in fact, on the same phone call, he said, I've been snowboarding 15 times already this season. Yet, he himself, not middle-aged man, but he's a 30-year-old man, single-handedly paid for water well in Nigeria. He himself, right? Is that what a clean water well? Yep. He, for, for, for this, he himself did it. And he said that, it, it awakened him to realize I could do something. And because of that, he shared with another person, showed up the pictures of the water well and, the, and how much it cost. And the other person said, oh my gosh, I'm going to Nigeria. And that person, without, hesit without we're not sure what is going to, but he's talking about building a dorm. Right? And he's a, he's a little wealthier. So to him, he's going, that does no skin off my nose to provide. I believe the sin that is, the temptation that is common to man has subdued the American church to think, I'm Life is so difficult for us. Let's not think beyond that. Let's not think beyond that. And here are two people awakened to the reality that God has been so good to them, they should do something about it. That's what missions is. God calls us to reach the world. There is one, always one out there that needs to be sought. There's one out there that needs to be saved. There's one out there. And missions is us saying, God, in faith, we're giving to that cause. We're giving to that unknown, unseen person who will find eternity in the arms of Christ because somebody put an offering in a bucket on the other side of the world. That's the power of the kingdom of God and it's the power of missions. Right? And sometimes when we lay low, it's not just us that miss out on the promise. Right? When we give this morning to missions, that's, that's the heart of it heart of it. Let us be motivated by the one that is lost. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus, God. Bless and honor all those that give to this cause, which is yours. To go out into the world and make disciples. We thank you for it in the mighty name of Jesus. The mighty name of Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in a song as they pass the bucket. And as they finish, we'll be dismissed. Enjoy your Super Bowl today. If you're watching it, Everybody cheer for somebody. Have a good time. Enjoy each other's company. I apologize that our fast is during the Super Bowl. I apologize in advance for all of the carrots that will be eaten instead of chicken wings. God bless you guys. Have a great week.